Nou. Zo. Oh wow, there's not many questions. Goodness gracious. Do you think the practice of meditation could help to how to forestall the development of dementia? Yes. Because one of the things is that you know, for um, dementia it is sometimes one of those um, symptoms is that your memory is no good. And meditation, one of the most important parts of meditation, development of sati, mindfulness. And sati, mindfulness, uh, is also uh, correlated with the Sanskrit word smriti, which is like tradition, memory. And this is one part of mindfulness which is often not mentioned. To the point that the Buddha specifically said, the one who has good mindfulness remembers things said and done a long time ago. Now there is you know, something very interesting. It's not just being aware now, but it's actually just being aware now so it is stored in your memory very easily. And number two, more interesting, I was like the fascinating stuff, that when you have strong superpower mindfulness, where those hindrances, the five hindrances are really suppressed and your mind is very powerful, that is when you can start recording your early memories. That's a fascinating thing. I don't know where I got this from in my, this life, but when I was meditating, there's some things I can't say because it's against my uh, monastic rules. You know, things which are uh, put under the superhuman attainments, Utri Manusa Dhamma. That gets me in big trouble. Even if they're true, it gets me into big trouble. Because uh, some people say, nah, you're just making that up. But, once, I know the loopholes. That's one of the things about learning the monks Vinaya, the nuns Vinaya, I know these loopholes. So, one of those loopholes is, it's okay to say things about this life. So, on this occasion, nice meditation, really deep, superpower mindfulness, whoa, you really got energy inside of you. And so, I asked myself, what is my earliest memory? In meditation, quietly, coming out of deep meditation, still have lots of power, what's my earliest memory? And the first time I did this, was, I had a smell in my nose. And it was not a smell which was in the meditation hall. And I recognized it immediately as the smell of my baby's pram when I was, must have been about five or six weeks old. And I, as soon as you recall these early life memories, there's no way in the world that my brain could have kept that memory. It wasn't formed enough yet. And the mind could remember it. I remembered it so clearly you're actually back there, in my baby's pram, black and white, with my favourite toy, which was this light blue, uh, it was uh, 
It was a plastic, I think, plastic pig. You know what we called it? Porky. And it had like some beans or something inside because my mother would rattle it. And as a little baby, I really liked that and should make it walk. And I was in my pram experiencing everything, mostly by smell, exploring it. And the, as long as I wanted. And then obviously you came out afterwards and that was really weird. Very clear memory of something which was so many years earlier. And that just started letting me know what this mindfulness can really do. Go way beyond your brain cap capability to other types of memory. And indeed there are those two types of memory. The memory through the brain and after a while the brain just uh, gets worn out or gets ill. It gets wounded in case you've had some trauma. But the mind, that can actually go much deeper. And it's from that mind you get your past life memories. And these happen. And when people do get these past life memories, you can actually investigate and find out exactly who was this? When was this? Where was this? And that's when it gets really cool when people go and check out whether that person really existed. So that's an interesting to, thing you can do through your meditation. That's mindfulness really getting strong, going way past dementia. How many of you can remember when you were born? Does that mean you weren't born? Just taking it on the, on the <laughs> out of trust with your mother? <laughs> Did you really come being brought by a stork? <laughs> no, of course not. But imagine you could remember that yourself, the time you came out of your mother's womb, the time you were in the womb. All this sort of stuff. I was a scientist. I still am. Theoretical physicist tough physics, quantum f f theory. It's really weird, I'm still, I get all these emails, Australian Institute of Physics, because I'm well known amongst these physicists. I don't know if you know one of the most famous physicists alive today. To me, I always think he's much smarter than Stephen Hawking's, was Roger Penrose. Sir Roger Penrose. He was the one who did the math to actually to, to see that black holes actually exist. And it was uh, Stephen Hawking's worked on uh, Roger Penrose's stuff. But you get all these opportunities on this one occasion when Roger Penrose was going through Perth and I was invited to have dinner with him. I couldn't have the dinner, but it was nice actually meeting some of these greatest physicists alive today. Amazing brains. But anyway, for dementia, what actually is it? reliance on sort of the human brain and not knowing how it works and how to energize it and to actually to train it to keep it bright so my answer to that is a very strong yes maybe other reasons but 
when I was over in, living in Thailand, met many, many old monks. And those old monks, 90, 95, 100, I never met one which had dementia. That's incredible memories. Number two, does the good karma we do now cancel off the bad karma we have done in the past, even past lives? Or when someone realizes meditation, non-self through meditation, is that when all past karma finished? Because you realize there was no one to begin with. First of all, your good karma is in one bank account, say with Nat West, is that right? <laughs> and yeah, that's your bad karma. Your good karma is with Barclays or something. That's what my brother used to work for. Barclays. Anyway, did I get that right? Or they all just been taken over by one another? I'm not sure. Anyway, so you've got different sort of accounts. And the weird thing is, according to how the Buddha taught, you just do one good act of karma, just one small act of karma, good karma, and it's not just stored in a one for one. You get thousand times, million times back you know, a nice act which you've done. That is when you do an act of kindness or charity or, or you just say sorry to someone you don't really need to say sorry to, but it's a beautiful act. And that is not just, you know, one for one. You get that back thousands of times, millions of times. Every time you remember that kind act of sacrifice and service, you get a boost of energy back again. But the bad karma you did, every time you remember, oh, I shouldn't have done that, oh, why did I do that? Every time you remember it, you suffer. Can't really, well, you sort of can say you could cancel them out. But the point is, I worked out the amount of bad karma you have to pay off is so huge. It's bigger than the national debt of the United States. It's got a big national debt, hasn't it? No. I don't know, anyway. Anyway. <laughs> so it's almost impossible to actually, to, to pay off. But neither is your good karma. Your good karma is huge. Many of you don't realise how big, huge, almost inexhaustible your good karma is. So why is it that we keep experiencing bad karma, results of bad karma? It is because we forgot the pin number to access the good karma. And that pin number is just reflecting on all the good things you've done, all the kindness you've done, all the wonderful services you've done. And you've all done lots, but we tend to be negative. When it's negative, negativity is a pin number to get the bad karma out. Positivity, forgiveness, kindness, gentleness, generosity, what's called the right intentions of the Noble Eightfold Path, they actually bring in good karma. Once you have a, a really good state of mind, you find out good things happen to you. I'm not talking about gross things like winning lotteries. I mean like good health, sort of uh, happiness, being able to meet really nice uh, people. All that comes when you start um, getting into the good karma.
So after a while, try to pay off the bad karma. Or as sometimes a Buddha said, to dilute the bad karma with good karma. There is another way. Which is actually to just keep this very positive, happy, beautiful mind state. Which hopefully you've learnt something about in Gaia House. Kindness, forgiveness, generosity, peace. This powerful peace which you find in deep meditation. That just draws in more and more and more good karma. All those examples, there's heaps of them about people healing such sicknesses. Oh, this, this is a recent one. And this, uh, sometimes it makes me sort of teary when, you know, that these are real things I've seen. And uh, about eight, nine months ago, I forget how long it was, there was this about 12 or 13 year old Sri Lankan girl. Her mother brought her to, uh, brought her to see me. They'd found out she's this really bright, positive, starting off, you know, the really important part of life, the puberty. Such a really good attitude, but the doctor found out that, that she had a deformity in her spine. It was twisted. Up until that, she hadn't really noticed it. But now, noticed it, the only therapy which they said would work would have this like metal cage from her chest up to her neck which you'd have to wear just uh, almost 24-7. And this poor girl, not, not only did it hurt, but also that I knew as a school teacher for one year that a young girl at puberty, 12 years of age, a tiny deformity in her would be amplified and she'd lose that wonderful confidence she had in her life. And with all the best people in the world, the school kids will probably call her Iron Woman or somewhere or, or whatever. And she wouldn't be able to join in what the other kids were joining in with. It was not just physical, it was like an emotional cage she had to wear. So, mother was really distressed. Can you please do something with meditation or something? So I taught her the simple meditations, and especially getting nimitas up. These lights after the breath disappears. And this little girl was brilliant. And sometimes, when you're young, you don't think so much, and you have a lot of trust. You follow the instructions. And this girl was great, because the mother, she brought her to see me about three weeks later, and the mother was really teary this time. You said, have a look, see what happens. Because it had the, on the, the iPhone, they had a picture of the distorted spine before. And then what she'd done, she'd got this, this beautiful blue light, nimiter, you know, in her mind. And she ne I never told her how to do this, she did it herself, the genius. She imagined her spine, she'd seen it many times you know, on the, the scans, the doctor showed her this is you know, why we have to put this cage around your top. You can see just, it's all twisted. And you can see the twisted one. And so she knew what that distorted spine looked like. She imagined it in the middle of that nimiter. The blue nimiter and the spine inside all, all twisted. And then she decided to straighten the spine. And the bottom half straightened. She thought she was just playing around until she went to the, the uh, physiotherapist afterwards. And they took her another scan of her spine, as they always like doing. And they said, oh, we have to do it again, there's something wrong. 
That's always a really good sign. <laughs> and I said, what the heck have you been doing? I know what I've been doing, but the bottom half is straightened. And that's why, you know, as he came to see me, he said, look. And they showed me the two um, scans on the, on the uh, iPhone. You see, the bottom half is straightened. This little 13-year-old genius had done it herself through meditation. And that is just beautiful stuff. You know, the amount of pain and distress could be taken away. Whoa. So anyway, uh, to get the bad karma away, sometimes association with good people, it's amazing what people can do. And now also, the best part of it is what they say is really true. Eventually, when you do uh, disappear, you don't attain to being a stream winner. You partially vanish your sense of ego and self, and that becomes a stream winner, a stage in your disappearance from samsara. So sometimes we call these attainments, and attainments, haven't you got enough attainments already? What else do you want to attain? How many of you got degrees? I've got a degree, uh, really weird, in Cambridge you don't get BSCs, BAs. Bachelor of Arts in Science. Anyway, <laughs> I won't really go there. And other degrees, but how many more degrees do you want? You know, I just, I eventually that turned into an MA, and recently I got another prize. I got like this, the same as the OBE, but it's called the, the Order of Australia. You know what for? The services to Buddhism and gender equity. And that is from Queen Elizabeth. Not from Queen Elizabeth, the Queen of England, but Queen Elizabeth, the Queen of Australia. They're the same person, but from protocol, I've got to call her Queen Elizabeth of Australia. It's weird. But anyway, so I've got an MA and an AM. What does that make me? Ma'am. You're allowed to laugh. Mem. So my title is Mem Brahm. And they also say sometimes, what happens if an Earl gets an OBE? They become an earlobe. <laughs> I heard that one, that radio show. I'm sorry, I read that again. Bill Oddie, remember Bill Oddie? Yeah, that was his joke. So anyway, where am I? Uh, yeah, uh, oh yeah, let it go. So, when you disappear, your identity, who you think you are, becomes less solid. Whereas you own less. Not me, not mine, not a self. As that ownership vanishes, so does a lot of your bad karma. I often wonder, why can't people forgive themselves? Why are they attached to the bad karma of the past? And quite frankly, look, you thought it was a good idea at the time. You did it, you were in a difficult situation, between a rock and a hard place, as they say. You were trying your best, and it all went really bad. 
Why do you keep punishing yourself? It's so weird why people can't forgive and let go, especially themselves. A lot of the time you didn't do anything, somebody else's fault. But, the more you meditate, the more you penetrate this idea of a self, the more that you can let go of attainments and failures until the point comes, especially the failures, you just let them go. This becomes the party word, it's a hosey karma. Karma that was, but can never ever reach you again. You've literally closed the Nat West account. Even though there's lots of stuff in there, it's closed. The, the, the negative account. It's one of the reasons why they say a stream winner can never go back to the, the lower realms. Can never be punished. They've gone beyond that. It's weird stuff. I always wonder why? Why is that the case? And it's because you let it go. I like talking with psychologists. People who aren't the same as me, because, you know, to because they keep me on the straight and narrow. If I just talk with other Buddhists, and same monastery, I'll say, yes, Ajahn Brahm, yes, Ajahn Brahm, yes, Ajahn Brahm, yes, Ajahn Brahm. And it's just, you don't get anywhere that way. So I like being challenged by people of other faiths, people of other ideas. But it's great to actually to, to talk with psychologists and eventually convincing them that your past is like, you know, you've got a, a little boat you know, on the Thames River or something, and you're dragging all of these barges behind you with a lot of rubbish in them. And sometimes you think, how am I ever going to get rid of all this big weight behind you? And see if I can just uncouple it. Simple as that. In just one insight, you can let go of everything. You don't have to bring it all up. You just totally let it go. Ooh, that is fascinating. It's like it was a different person did those acts. Cut, and it's gone. But you can't imagine that. You can't say, oh yeah, I know there's no self, so I don't have to worry about this anymore. You really have to experience that, like the tadpole being the, the frog. It totally goes. You're free. That is so cool. Okay. Next one. What does it say here? Uh, yeah. You realize there was no one to begin with. It's more than just realizing it, it's experiencing it to the core. You can't play the dummy, you can't act it out. You are, oh my goodness. What am I doing here? Next question. There is a part of me that associates solitude with sadness, anxiety and a sense of withdrawing away. Inconsequentially, this feeling inhibits my practice. What would you suggest? I know here in England sometimes that they, they confuse solitude with solitude. Every time I'm walking, and actually I'm being heedless, and somebody steps on my foot. And they're the ones who say sorry. People always say sorry. They haven't done anything. 
Why do people in UK, is it the same in other countries of Europe? No. Only England, they say sorry. We're addicted to saying sorry. It's the island of solitude. <laughs> British Isles. But the other similar, instead of solitude, solitude, nah, the other one is silitude. Silitude, you've heard me say many times here. Silitude <laughs> is putting a bit of fun and joy into your life. Being silly. So, silitude, okay. Solitude, no way. And solitude, solitude, in all my life as a monk, I've never been alone. There's always someone there with me. Me. I've got a very good relationship to myself. I'm not afraid of myself. I spent six months not seeing or hearing any other living being. No, any other uh, human being for six months. One of the best times of my monastic life. Real retreat. And it, I, I loved that. The reason was because I was at peace with myself. I've got a good relationship with myself, so I'm always with one of my best friends, me. When you're with others, you're with lovely people as well. So you find, if you can have a sense of love to yourself, you're never alone. There were seven monks meditating in a cave. These seven monks, now I'm going to ask you a question. So this is interaction. So you can't just sit there and zone out. <laughs> seven monks in a cave. And those monks, there was the head monk, there was his brother, there was his best friend, that all ordained together. The next monk was like the enemy. They just had personality conflict. You don't know why, but they could never get on together. They, that was the fourth monk. The fifth monk was a really old monk. He was so advanced in years, he could die any day. No one knew when he was going to die. The next monk was a very sick monk. His illness was so advanced that no one knew whether the sick monk or the old monk will die first. And the last monk, the last monk was what we call the useless monk. Whenever he started to meditate, he'd always be the first one to snore. Whenever anybody sort of was doing any chanting, he would always chant off key. He couldn't even keep his robes on. Oops. <laughs> so he was a useless monk, but they loved him anyway. And it was very welcome to be there, no judgment. But anyway, one day they were meditating in this really secluded cave and these bands of robbers, thieves, bad guys, they found that cave and they thought this is an excellent hideout for us. Whenever we do our bad deeds, we can hide in here, the police will never find us, and we can store all our, bad, all our goods in here, all the stolen loot, until the heat goes down. This is an excellent hideout for us. There's only one problem. The monks found it first. So there's really bad people. So they decided to kill every one of those monks. But the head monk, he was such a good talker. He could talk Boris Johnson into giving up Brexit. <laughs> he could talk <laughs> Mr. Trump of uh, becoming a Buddhist. 
He was such a good talker. He should have been a used car salesman or something. But anyway, he, he took the head of these band of thieves. He said, look, why do you want to kill us all? He said, we want to make sure you don't uh, tell the police the location of the cave. Look, we promise we're monks. We don't lie. We he said, that's not enough. I've got to prove to you that we are serious. So the, band, the head of the thieves said, I've got to kill one of your monks in front of you, in front of everybody, as a warning. To show that if we let the rest go, but if any of you tell the location of our cave, we'll come for you and we'll do the same to you. As a warning. That was the best the head monk could get from the bad guys. So, this head monk had to face this terrible choice. Who would die? Who would be sacrificed so the rest could live? And I'm going to ask you who you think was sacrificed. Remember, the seven monks in the cave. There was a head monk, his brother. His brother would do anything for him. It was his best friend. You know that's what a friend is for. Sometimes a friend is always there even to give up their life for you. The next one was the enemy. The enemy always gave him a hard time. Always you know, spent so much time figuring out sort of how to, to, um, to live in harmony with this enemy. Maybe if he wasn't there, he'd have more chance to actually teach others. The next one was the, the old monk. The old monk was going to die any day anyway. He was just, you know, not really sacrificing, he was just, you know, hastening his death. Same with the sick monk. Put him out of his misery. Or the useless monk. The useless monk had never done any good karma in his whole life. Maybe this was the opportunity for the useless monk to do something of service. So, if you were that head monk, who would you choose? Thank you for saying that, because that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> if you hang around me long enough, never answer any of my questions, because they're always trick. I'm a sneaky monk. <laughs> I remember telling that story when I was in Sacramento, and we had an act, the reason I told it there, there was an Episcopalian bishop there. I told it especially for him, he said, who was sacrificed? He said, oh, obviously himself. Wrong. And I got him interested, you know, where's this going? So, those of you who haven't heard this, who do you think? Anyone for the useless monk? Very good, you've got to be compassionate. I've already told you not to answer anyway, so. <laughs> the answer was that the head monk was totally unable to choose his love and respect for his best friend was equal, no more, no less, than his love and respect to his brother. It was no more, no less, than the respect and love for the, the enemy. The old monk, the sick monk, the useless monk, he loved everyone evenly. And most importantly, he loved himself no more, no less than everybody else. I remember telling the, the bishop, I said, don't you remember your teacher, Jesus? 
telling you to love your neighbour as yourself. Did he ever say to love your neighbour more than yourself? Or less? As? Equal? Love your neighbour as yourself means to love yourself as your neighbour. No more, no less. He couldn't choose. He respected everybody equally. And the interesting part is, most people, if you hadn't heard this before, you probably would have agreed. Yeah, he sacrificed himself. That is a sign, believe it or not, of not regarding ourselves equally with others. Discriminating against ourselves. We don't deserve as much as our neighbours deserve. The lack of self-love, of self-respect, is what's been taught. Sacrifice ourselves. So that's one of the reasons when you understand that simile, you're with yourself, you love yourself, you're at peace with yourself. As you love others and at peace with others. No more, no less. I'm happy with others as I'm happy with myself. And of course people ask, well, Ajahn Brahm, what happened next? And this is actually based, only loosely based, I must admit, on the story of Talaputta Terra. The robbers were so impressed by the, the explanation that half of those robbers, they gave up being bad people and ordained as monks, and the other half went back to their village and got proper jobs. <laughs> and now, you've seen stuff like that happen. When people get inspired, and they can let go of their past faults, and they can see something inside of themselves they can respect, they can love themselves. It's amazing the sort of transformation, the ethical transformation in their lives which happens. So, here and here, to uh, if you have solitude, why aren't you happy in solitude? It's learning how to come to terms with oneself, respect oneself, open the door of your heart to yourself. You don't have to be perfect. Remember what I said about the tree in the forest? All those trees in the forest belong. Stop trying to be so perfect. Otherwise you get so stressed out, you, you never get there. Straight. Imagine a, a big tree in the forest. It's not perfect. So you actually start to pull it and straighten it. All of those um, damage on the bark, sand it down. So it's nice and smooth and perfect. And make sure all those leaves are sprayed them with pesticides so nothing actually bites them. Who would ever do that to a tree? Stop trying to make yourself something you're not. Be at peace with yourself. Happy to be you. And then after a while, when there's nothing more to do, that's when you get so peaceful, you start disappearing. So anyway, that's where, in solitude, sadness, anxiety, Ooh, in solitude, just with my best friend. I'm never sad when I'm by myself. Yeah, here we are again, Ajahn Brahm and me, hanging out together in my cave. We had a great time. Okay, more than halfway through, okay, very good.
Here we go. Well, you know, if your question doesn't get answered, it's because your karma is not good enough. <laughs> not my fault. Okay, it's my fault. <laughs> Dear Ajahn, can you tell us a simile about seven sailors on a shipwreck, please? Thank you. The actual story, they weren't really on a shipwreck. I added that because seven sailors in the middle of the ocean. So what else would they be doing in the middle of the ocean if it wasn't a shipwreck? And this was the story of the uh, stages of enlightenment. The first person in the middle of the ocean tries to stay up but goes straight down. Basically they're bad karma. They've never really been kind, done anything to anybody. The second sailor manages to stay up but then goes down, manages to get up again, goes down, manages to get up again and after exhaustion goes way down and dies. Drowns. That is to say they've got some good karma, some bad karma, but literally cannot keep their head above water. Just basically their karma wasn't sort of good enough, they haven't really been kind, good. You know what happens when you have got lots of good karma? So many people will care for you, look after you. I never carry any insurance. Okay, here in UK, I've got UK passport, but in many other countries I don't take insurance. If I get uh, injured in, say, the US, I know so many doctors over there who would be fighting over who would pay my bills, making good karma. It's weird, but it's, it's true. When you're kind to others, it's called paying it forward. You're kind to others and people are looking for the chance of helping you out afterwards. So it's beautiful when you don't have to worry about that. So when you have lots of good karma, you, f you float. When you're in difficulty and troubles in life, you've got lots of people who will come and look after you and help you. It's called like a community. A community who care for you. You care for them. And it comes, comes back to you. It's wonderful to see. And anyway, that was the third one. The fourth one is a good person and they're also floating above the water. They look around, oh, they can see the, the safety, they can see the shore. That's called the stream winner. The one who can see the safety from samsara. They can actually, the right view, they see what's happening. And the fifth one, of course, what you do when you can see safety, you start swimming for goodness sake. So it's swimming, you're on your way to the shore. The sixth one is called the non-returner, the anagami. They're so close to the shore, they can actually put their legs down, they can feel dry land. They're wading to the shore. The last one, the Arahat, they made it to the shore. And they're sitting there under the tree having a beautiful cup of tea. Good English tea, sitting under there enjoying their freedom from any concern or suffering. The enlightened one. So that's the shipwreck sailors with a little bit of extra to make it interesting. Okay, oh, yeah. I thought this was written in Polish or something, but I got it upside down. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> stupid, I Bob. I often suffer from overthinking, depression and lack of energy, all feeding into one another. There was uh, one of the cartoons. In the cartoon, it just makes it very clear. There was these two monks, the abbot and the uh, disciple, and the disciple was being given an award by the abbot for his thoughtlessness. 
<laughs> You're the most thoughtless monk of the week. <laughs> we think that being thoughtless is something bad. But in a retreat or in a monastery, that's really good. Having the least thoughts of any monk. Anyway, a lack of energy, of course it takes up energy to think. Does thinking ever really solve problems? Most of the answers, actually the title of this retreat, The Wisdom Born of Stillness, the greatest insights come when you're perfectly still. Similarly of the lake reflecting the full moon, only when it's still. Or, uh, who's that fellow, Brian Josephson? the only Welsh person to get the Nobel Prize for Physics. For the Joseph's Injunction, quantum tunnelling, which gives rise to the possibility of supercomputing. It works. He got that after meditating. Stillness. Uh, he was TM, the Transcendental Meditation. He got his Nobel Prize after meditating. That's really far out. But anyway, so we're overthinking, and of course you get depressed. You've got no energy left. That's why one of the great um, remedies for depression, if it's really deep depression, you do need medical help. But if it's this average type of depression, be still. Relax, you've overworked your brain. And getting negative and worrying about how to get out of this digs you deep into the hole. Just be peaceful, with kindness. And the energy returns to your mind. And you get charged up. Depression is a really flat battery for your brain. And if you try and worry about it, think your way out of it, struggle with it, you just lose the little amount of energy you already have. But you're still peaceful. You find you start to energize. You start to, whoa, you feel the energy going through your body and through your mind. That's why, that's how one amazing way how these meditations can empower you feel energy come back and you can really work and serve. When you get tired, take a break and you get energized again through meditation. Not thinking. Uh, all feeding into one another. In order to meditate, be with friends, exercise or work on the things I've chosen to do in life, I feel I need a lot of energy, which often comes from validation from others throughout my youth. How can I be start creating a positive cycle of energy in my life. When you wake up in the morning, what do you do? You go to the toilet, this is my first meditation teacher told me this. I was a student, I said, I go to the toilet first thing in the morning. Great, is there a mirror in your bathroom? Yeah, of course. He said, well, I know, after urinating or whatever, go in front of that mirror and smile at yourself. I said, look, I'm a student, I stay up late. In the morning, oh, I wouldn't like to look at myself in the mirror. I'd be scared of what I might see. And that's when he told me to do the two-finger 
method. Now, honestly, this is not stupid stuff. This works. For two years I followed this advice, and if I look happy, it's because of my practice. Every morning, look at myself in the mirror, smiling. So I couldn't manage a normal smile, two fingers, side of the mouth, and push up. <laughs> and I saw this stupid young student making a face in the mirror, and I just couldn't help it. I was, I was laughing at myself every morning for two years. You know, you wake up with a hangover, you know, I told you I used to drink when I was a student, or, you know, broken up with your girlfriend, you know, not finishing your um, assignments in time, having to rush with those. How you feel when you wake up in the morning when you're young, you've been out most of the night. And of course, a quick boost of energy. And my goodness, that worked. And even these days, you know, we all have to do exercises. I do my 10 push-ups every morning. One, two, three, four. Keep my smiley muscles going. <laughs> anyway, so that's one way to, and it's, people think I'm just, don't really understand what depression is. No. This is actually a great way of starting to get a positive mind state. What is your advice on working with st stuckness? That's a good word. Stuckness, dullness and disassociation experienced together in various degrees. So you're stuck. Change your attitude being stuck. It's nice being stuck. It means you don't have to go anywhere. I'm here, stuck on my seat, meditating. So I don't need to get up. Dullness, being dull. Investigate being dull. What does it actually feel like being dull? Is it all the same side of dullness all the time? Or as it gets worse? Uh, really investigate dullness and then write an essay about it and send it off to the Sunny Times or the Guardian or something. People only write articles on the interesting stuff, but the boring stuff, even boredom. What is boredom? Does it actually change? Different degrees of boredom? Now how does it how does it change? And what does it feel like? Where do you feel it in the body? Boredom? Or is it just in the mind? How does it manifest in your life? Become an expert in boredom. It's a very interesting subject, boredom. <laughs> you add interest to it. And dissociation experience together in various degrees. Sometimes it's nice to be disassociated. I always like to disassociate with whatever comes out of my backside when I sit on the toilet. To let it go and to wipe it off so none of it is left. There's wonderful things to let go of, to disassociate. But when you're disassociated, what are you left with? Who's left when you disassociate? Again, if you've got a very good relationship with yourself, then you're not afraid of dissociation. When everyone else has disappeared, who's left? Eee! See if you can have a great uh, association with yourself. I know sometimes as a monk we're not allowed to hug. And sometimes people come out to me, don't, wouldn't you like a nice hug, Ajahn Brahm? You've been celibate, alone, don't you miss being hugged? I don't miss being hugged. You know why? 
Because whenever I need a hug, <coughs> I hug myself. That way I can never be um, criticised or charged with any type of assault. <laughs> I can never catch any disease I haven't already got. It's really safe. I think I already told you the disease, I, I have got a contagious disease. I should have actually put that down on the, <laughs> on the, the sheet for Gaia House. Any contagious diseases? Oh my goodness, it's called Happy Titus B. <laughs> Not Hepatitis B, that is dangerous. Happy Titus Buddhism. Happy Titus B for short. I'm a chronic sufferer and I've spread that to so many people. I apologise. <laughs> <laughs> can I feel compassion towards someone and not like them? Oh yeah, that was a nice little teaching from His Holiness the, uh, the uh, Dalai Lama. If you've got like a boss at work who gives you hell, you know, the boss from hell, or someone you always have to be with all the time, say your mother-in-law. Have you ever worked out mother No, you, some mothers-in-law are great. But if you go back, write down mother-in-law, rearrange the letters and you find it spells Hitler woman. <laughs> I don't know why I remember all these things. <laughs> Give it a try. <laughs> but anyway, many mothers-in-law are wonderful. I don't know why they got the bad reputation. What was that? Oh, that comedian in from the north of England. Les Dawson. Remember Les Dawson? Yeah. And he used to say that, you know, he would, or his mother-in-law would always come round to his house for Christmas. Every year since he got married. Isn't that sweet? He said the last year he decided to make an exception and let her in. <laughs> <laughs> Came to the house, but, you know, on the door outside, they let her in. Anyway, what am I doing with this one? Okay, um, Demento, what's I talking about? Compassion, oh yeah. So the soldiers of Dalai Lama would say that if it's a boss or someone you don't like, you only have to be with them maybe seven, eight hours a day, five days a week. They have to live with themselves all the time. So be compassionate to them. Because as they treat you, it's as they treat themselves. Kind people are kind to themselves. Same attitude, different objects, different destinations of their compassion, but you'll find that if they treat you just so badly, they'll treat themselves badly. So that's how we get compassion to people we don't like. They must be so lonely. Anyway, I'm about to sit on an eight-day silent personal retreat here at Guy House. I've done it before. I wanted to ask you how I should, could best deal with the experience of boredom. Excellent. Do a study of boredom. Be interested in boredom. And you will find boredom is the most fascinating subject. I'm n I never lose interest in finding something new in boredom every day. 
in other words, turn it up, it's not boredom, it's your attitude to peace and solitude. The whole of, if you might say, uh, meditation is a relationship you have with what you're experiencing. I haven't said this yet, but one of the most brilliant meditation um, methods cuts through so much uh, techniques is what I've called the Empress Three Questions Meditation. Hopefully some of you have read one of my books, The Opening the Door of Your Heart. There, story by Leo Tolstoy, Empress Three Questions, who is the most important thing in the world? No, sorry, let's start from the beginning. When is the most important time? Now, it's not a trick question, now, of course. <laughs> now is the only time we'd ever have. That's the most important time. Who is the most important person? You haven't done it? Now this is a brilliant um, story from Leo Tolstoy. The most important person is the one right in front of you. David, you're the most important person now. Well, not for long. <laughs> <laughs> the one right in front of you is the most important person in the world. I remember many, many times when I was a young student, when I read this, that sometimes you go up to a professor, you'd ask a question, you were pushed away. I was just a small, hairy, bearded student. I wasn't important. He had many other things to do. How does that feel? When people just push you away, they don't give you any time at all. You're not important. Those of you who are in a relationship, what's that like when you go home? And your partner said, oh, not now, darling. You feel rejected. Uncared for. It's basically, it sucks. So, if uh, the one in front is the most important person in the world, sometimes it's tiring, but I try and do that my best whenever I'm a teacher. Someone comes and sees me, I try and give you that attention and importance. The most important person in the world. Because you're in front of me. Sometimes there's no one in front of me. Or is there? It's me. <laughs> I'm important too. And the most important thing to do is to care. Not to cure, but to care. There's a whole story behind that, but... <laughs> there's so many questions left. But anyway, to care. So what does that mean in meditation? Brilliant way of meditating. Your eight days silent retreat. What's... It's not eight days long, it's always just now, this moment. So, you're sitting here, you're walking meditation, you're having some exercise, you're eating, whatever it is you're doing. When's the most important time? Please remember, always now. What's the most important meditation object? It's not jhanas or nimittas or the breath. It's whatever is in front of you in this very moment. That is the most important object in the whole world. This moment. If it's boredom, if it's restlessness, it's in front of you, give it attention. It's trying to teach you something, and sometimes, no, no, we want to get rid of this to get to where we want to be. Awareness of the breath, or deep meditation, or whatever you think it is. No, what's in front of you now is the most important thing. And what do you do with it? Not to try and get rid of it, to get something better, but to care for this moment, whatever it happens to be. 
If you practice that and really understand that, now is the most important time. The thing in front of you, which your mind's aware of, is the most important thing in the world. The most important thing to do is to care. You can never wander away. What do you mean wandering away? Where you are, that's where your mindfulness is. You may not be fully aware of this moment, but here we are, and this is the most important thing in the world. If you're sleepy, sleepiness is the most important thing in the world. Understand it, learn from it, care for it. And then it disappears in its own time. That's why if you're doing an eight-day silent retreat, please remember Emperor's Three Questions meditation. Now is the most important time, the only time you ever have. Whatever you're aware of in this moment is important. Don't try and get rid of it to get something else. That's ill will. And care for it. Brilliant meditation technique. And then sometimes people say, oh, I'm really sick. I'm in pain. I'm dying of cancer. How can I meditate? I ask them, well, you're in the present moment. Close your eyes. What's right in front of you? A lot of time it's fear. Well, if fear is in front of you, that's the most important meditation object for you. Care for it. Get to know it. Understand it. It's here to teach you some important lessons. And then, <laughs> and then, uh, that's where you learn and you grow and it disappears. Now it's the most important time. Whatever's in front of you right now is the most important thing in the world and care for it. Okay, we've got some more on this. I want to, to ask you how to ask you could best deal with the experience of boredom, restlessness, loneliness, also unpleasant things that I don't even know that they are, f they are yet. In other words, I really like the sound of deep relaxation, oops, and feeling pissed out. Is that really possible? Of course it is. Any one of you, any one of you can do that. Not everyone will. It's possible. So just follow the instructions and I will give you a money-back guarantee. You can always ask for your money back. You won't get it back, but you're allowed to ask. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Normally in the public sector, during continuous austerity, no resources, increasing demand, is a continuous challenge with personal happiness, some years away in the form of retirement. Retirement? I can't retire. I can't see why other people should be able to retire. It's unfair. Monks and nuns, in fact, the older we get, the harder we have to work. The holy life begins at 70. Before then, I mean, you're just, just learning the ropes. People sometimes ask your age, I remember saying, oh, I'm 40 or 50, they said, ah, not interested in you. Wait till you get old and you get venerable. We call everybody venerable. You can see some of these young people, they come and teach and they're venerable. How can you be venerable? You're only 30. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> so I can't retire. 
I tried to a few times, but they won't let me. I've got no pension. I've got no resources. I've got no investments. And even worse, the, you know that monk I said who pats King Cobras? You know, he's a really uh, good friend, a senior to me by one or two years. And also a, one of the people who was thrown out of Wat Bapong. So he's, you know, we've got many things in common. <laughs> so he, he in public, he told me, he said, Ajahn Brahm, you're an international teacher. You have to carry on teaching. And he told me, he said, if you stop teaching and travelling overseas to places like UK, you'll die. Thank you very much. So I am, I am cursed with having to teach until I drop. Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's not a real curse, it's obviously you enjoy being able to, to give. So no retirement. And why is it that sometimes people, they're really good at their job, they you know, really understand what's going on and they have to retire. All that great wisdom is lost to the public sector. So I think that they should and maybe just work less, but don't just retire totally. Use all of your wisdom to serve the public. That's what the public sector should be doing. Change the ethos to one of service rather than just a place of work to get something out of this. Continuous challenge with personal happiness some years away in the form of retirement. Happiness in retirement? I know many people as soon as they retire they drop dead. Nothing to do. Anyway, what Mark Twain used to say, make your vocation your vacation. In other words, whatever you do in your life, bring joy to it. And the job satisfaction. It is true that I work hard. I don't earn much. In fact, nothing. They don't pay me. But my job satisfaction is huge. And my retirement is out of this world. <laughs> okay, anyway. How can we better appreciate the now? It's all you got. So why not appreciate it? You don't have anything else. The future, who knows what's going to happen. It's just a fantasy, the future. And the past is even more of a fantasy. What you thought happened, did it really happen? You ask any psychologist. We create most of the past to fit our agendas. You ask Mr. Donald Trump, he actually believes much of the things he says, he creates it. Narcissism does, does that. And we all do that to a certain extent. We believe more what should have happened rather than what does happen. It's really quite scary sometimes. How can we look after our own wellness while working to serve others. Others? Us? Whenever I do the marriage blessings, I've said this already here, I don't think so. I look in, this is a weird thing in life, when people get married, they like to have someone like a celibate monk who's never been married, 
who's been celibate for 45 years give them advice on marriage. <laughs> it's crazy, isn't it? But nevertheless, you get, keep getting invited because it works. Because I live outside the box, I can see outside the box, see new things. So I look at the bride first of all, look her in the eyes and say, from now on you're a married woman. You must never think of yourself. She always smiles sweetly. I don't know if this is the same in England, but in Australia, I look at the, the groom and I say, you are now a married man, you must not think of yourself. He always pauses to consider, first of all. <laughs> is it the same in UK? <laughs> this is not misanthropop, mis, not, yeah, not mis, not, it's not misogynist, misanthropist, mismanist yeah. or something. Anyway, one of those. It's just my personal experience, not stereotyping, but he always pauses, first of all, to consider. And, but eventually he says, yes, okay. He won't think of himself. And then I keep looking at the guy and said, from this moment on you're a married man, you must not think of her, your wife. And then I turned to the wife and said, you're a married woman now, from this moment on you must never think of him, your husband. Just like you, you think, where's this going? What's the riddle here? What's the answer? It really gets people's attention and they don't understand what you're saying. And of course the answer is, I say, when you're married, if you, you must never think of yourself, nor think of your partner, only think of us. The third option which people miss. It's all about us, doing it together. If it's about me, that's not a marriage, that's selfishness. If it's about the other, you get burnt out. That's why this thing, Theravada and, and Mahayana, you don't sacrifice yourself for all other beings. It's not about your own enlightenment. I mean, it's together, it's about us. So both of those are just crazy ideas to me. We're in this together. It's about us. So if there's any problem, whose problem is it? Our problem. There we can solve it. Okay, so that's all about us. Okay to carry on? We'll have a time again. Woo, look at this. Let's say here. Dear <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Buddha Man. Oh, that's it. Sorry? No, no, wow, Mr. Buddha Man. <laughs> that's very nice. You were right about needing to open my heart to the... Oh, okay, yeah to the, uh, the little boy. But there was no monster inside me, it was the same scared little warrior uh, giving both of us one hell of a time. More, much love. This is actually the story I told, I don't think I did tell it here. It's about sometimes that when we were traumatized, tortured, hurt really badly, one way of dealing with that it's to try and forget it, to drive it away. It just makes it even worse, believe it or not. But there's this other way which I never um, discovered this, but somebody took some of my teachings and they just pushed it forward into this amazing little method 
of helping people who were tortured in underground dungeons overseas really abused badly and some of the stories I've heard make your skin crawl and it's just how can any human being do that to somebody else but anyway they took this and they started this society, Australian Society of Survivors of Torture and Trauma refugees have been given asylum have physical freedom but their mind is never free of that torture chamber and so what they do is I just this is again there's some things which you know, I have a part in which makes me so emotional it really works and it just gets people out of hell realms you imagine it, when you're safe you've got to feel safe first of all at your own time never forced never coerced you have to feel it's the right time to do this imagine a little heart in your chest a Valentine's Day heart not a real heart. If you're a doctor, it doesn't work because it chews all over the place. It doesn't really work. <laughs> Valentine's Day heart, two doors, and they open up. You're inside. The you, the part of you which you can accept and live with. But you look outside, rejected in cold, harsh, rainy concrete, whatever, is those parts of you was so badly treated. Those parts of you who were badly abused, they're outside. They've been kept outside for such a long time they just won't disappear. This comes from the, the story of opening the door of your heart. My father said, no matter what you've done, how you turn out, you're my son. My, I'll never be ashamed of you. You can always come in anytime unconditional love, meta. So you imagine this little staircase coming down from your heart. Visualize it whichever way you can. These little parts of you down there on the floor. Rejected, alone, cold. But that you can remember that's you. You so many years ago. Beaten, raped, so abused. You don't know why people you trusted. There, those parts of you which you can remember. You can't forget. You invite them up. Come inside. I'll no longer reject you. Then it's emotional, shaking, almost having to keep encouraging these parts of you to come inside until you, they get to the top of the stairs you're me, you're who I am come inside, I will never push you out or be ashamed of you or be, think I'm ever going to be diminished by what happened ever again one by one those little yous they come up <coughs> one by one you hug, you cry, reconcile, and they're inside of you after this. You never need to push them away ever again. And when I was invited to go to this group, I thought it was to give a talk, but they said no, to say thank you. And to hear some of the stories, and to see how it actually worked. It was 
counterintuitive, but it worked. People realised that the problem was of pushing it away, and it won't go. So bring it inside. You're a tree in the forest. The more twisted, the better. Anyway, I'd appreciate hearing your thoughts on seclusion versus activism in times of crisis. The simile of the mountain coming in and the unfolding, uh, the mountains coming in and the unfolding climate emergency in mind. I'm grappling with finding the balance between formal personal practice and climate emergency activism that is motivated by compassion. It always has to be a balance because whether it's, um, I go to Hong Kong very often and many, many friends and followers in Hong Kong and they you know, really feel for what's going on in Hong Kong and in many other places in the world. But when there's violence, it's the violence which gets on the news. In Australia, what we saw of climate activism was the people climbing on top of the tube train. The extremes of it. And that was only a fraction of what really happens out there. Much of it was peaceful, non-violent. When it gets to violence, it weakens. I gave a talk on that and it was basically the little another part of the poem by William Blake was it uh, I think it was vengeance to vengeance to the tyrant fled and caught the tyrant in his bed and slew the wicked tyrant's head and became a tyrant in his stead activism might win and if it wins it becomes much of the same Remember Animal Farm? George Orwell's? The animals threw out the humans who were abusing the animals. And they stated this, what these rules, and the first rule was all animals are equal. And after a few weeks the pigs took over and wrote all animals are equal but some animals are more equal than others. Activism has to be done, but if it can be trained with non-violence, what type of world do we want to build? Then you get so many people on board, and secondly, to have no enemies, whether it's the police, whether it's other beings. It's from the Iranawi Banga Sutta, the suit of non-conflict. Please blame the actions, never the people. Don't personalise it. Otherwise, there'll be conflict. So it's fine, please. Shout out about corruption. Shout out about insensitivity. Shout out about elitism. But not about a person who's corrupt. then you get other people on board. It's 8.46. Is that too late or shall we carry on? Carry on, okay. Okay. When I read Meditation Vipassana Center with Goenka, I found the 
institutions about scanning the body, instructions about scanning the body up and down continually created the tension. I would prefer to just deeper into the stillness, watching my breath. Is this okay? Of course it's okay. When I teach, you can do scanning of the body with passenger. I don't care. What I do care about is giving you freedom to find out what works for you. Experiment. This is not a control group. It's not a cult. It's not a, we're going to make you, and any, anyone who does Vipassana, get out. No. This is actually learning how to be peaceful and find out your own little way of actually dealing with, with your mind, finding out what works for you. Never criticizing any other person or group. Finding out. If you like, you can look at the suttas, if you like. They're the, the, uh, they're the uh, bedrock of how to find out what's right and what's wrong. But also, your happiness your peace. The first Buddhist nun, Mahapajapati, Buddhist foster nun, was, give me some teachings. He said, whatever leads to peace, to stillness, you can say to happiness, to freedom, to enlightenment, that is the teachings of the Buddha. If you come on a retreat and you go home, ask your partner, just make me a better partner or more of a pain in the butt. If she says or he says, more of a pain in the butt, it's the wrong way. But if it makes you more peaceful, more happy, more sensitive, more kind, more peaceful, carry on. Send her to the next retreat as soon as possible. <laughs> this is husband improvement camp, wife improvement camp. <laughs> how, do we, how do we become monastics with you? The first thing is shaving your head. First step, first of all. <laughs> now we're trying our best to open up as many opportunities, but it's really difficult in this day and age, right? even with uh, a venerable chanda. It's hard to get a place to stay. And support as well. Because of our tradition, we just do not accept money. So it means that you know, we have to have a place to stay, people look after us. Why do you do that? Why can't monks and nuns of our tradition just you know, get a place and work hard growing a veggie garden, go to some really remote places, really cheap, live simply? Why do we do that? It's because the point of being a monastic is not just to have solitude, but also to be served, to serve, to give people that opportunity where you have to come to feed us, otherwise we'll starve. The Buddha did that on purpose, to keep that connection, that relationship between the monks, nuns, the lay community, the four groups, the four parisas, bhikkhunis, bhikkhus, Upasikas, Upasikas. So we can learn from one another, support one another. It's an amazing thing. If ever any of you have the opportunity to come to Perth and see 
the monastery where I live. People travel from long distances to feed the monks as if I need many more food. Mm-hmm. You ask them, why do you do that? I know the answer because I've done that many times but I invite people. Ask, why do you travel so much to feed the Sangha? And they always say, because I get so much joy out of this. You have the opportunity to hang out and be with some very, very good, kind, wise people. And you get so much out of it. And you go home afterwards having fed Venerable Chanda with a lot of happiness and joy. When you love someone, you want to give something to them. That's what we do on birthdays, on Christmas or Valentine's Day. What do you want? Sometimes it's very difficult being among. There's nothing I want. So someone says, can I get you something? And I really let you down if I say no. But you get me something and I open it up and yay! Even here, it, I did actually bring some socks with me, but I haven't worn them. Because I've got really good circulation in my feet. But once in Melbourne, it's warm there. This lady who had cancer, uh, actually it was her grandson became a famous cricketer, Ashton Agar, playing for the Australian team, spinner. But anyway, uh, she, uh, I went to see her, she said, I've knitted you a pair of socks. So what did I do? Did I say, nah, I don't wear socks? That is really insensitive. Even if it's true, I said, okay, thank you. And I put them on, even though it made my feet sweat and uncomfortable. And when I left the hospital, I knew she had a room overlooking the car park. And so as soon as I left the room and went outside to get to the car, I lifted up my robe and kicked my legs out Mm -hmm. to show her my socks because she was looking at the window. That's actually how you deal with, with kindness and generosity. Generosity is the way we express our love towards one another, basically. And whatever you give Venerable Chandra is, is really worth, worthwhile. But I tell you, you'll get much more out of it than she ever gets. Sharing something, giving someone a gift of food, kindness, whatever. Who really needs it. That's why we're deliberately poor. We're like little children. We can't do things for ourselves. Physically we can, but our rules say no. So that we're helpless. So we're saying we need you. It's a wonderful thing. If, you, if she was independent, self-sufficient, she'd be saying, I don't need you. She can last by herself, survive by herself. She's saying I need other people. Number one, that's a wonderful expression of, um, what's it, uh, non-arrogance and humility, yeah. And also a wonderful opportunity to open up to others. That's why monks and nuns, they're really sort of popular. Apparently one of these notes somewhere was saying, they wanted to, how do I, how do we get a monastery in Poland? Federal Chandler had a peek at the place afterwards. What do, you want a, what do you want a monastery in Poland for? Having to go and feed monks or nuns all the time? Oh, it's just such a burden. Mm-hmm. Is it? 
It's a joy. I don't have to come to England to teach. I've got enough work already in Australia. What do I want to do this for? Because I care. It's fun. Sort of caring for people. That's what I give. I have a heart condition that has caused chronic, no, heart, hearth condition, anyway, but caused chronic itching which I can lit hives. It says hearth here. Anyway, whatever. Chronic itching which can leave my whole body feeling on fire. It's, a, it's very little that eases it. How can I use my meditation practice to learn to tolerate the pain? Thank you. Advice. Oh. One of those wonderful little stories experienced in my life. This was one guy came to one of my meditation retreats years ago and we were hiring a Catholic retreat centre in North Perth which was just next to the red light district between Perth and North Perth was North Bridge. The red light district of Perth. So when this guy came wearing a rubber face mask, I thought, who's coming on my retreat today? Some weirdo. <laughs> but of course, he said the reason he's here because he has this chronic psoriasis and the face mask is stopping him scratching the skin off his face. And there's, you know, it's warm in Perth. He didn't have a jumper on, just a shirt. He opened the buttons of his shirt and opened up so I could see his, his um, uh, skin on his chest. It was disgusting. It was just all rash everywhere. He lifted up his trousers to show me the rash on his legs. He said, this is 24-7 and it's uh, like torture can't sleep well and he said I wear this face mark I come to check in with you because I don't know if I can last an hour on this retreat but I'm coming anyway and this I always tell the nice stories actually most of them are nice stories this is one of the nice stories at the end of the retreat he stayed all the nine days wonderful and he came to me with this huge smile on his his psoriasis free face and he flashed again he opened up his shirt see it's all free he opened up he, no he didn't open up his, his trousers <laughs> <laughs> he didn't go that far but I believed he, he raised his, the lower part of his trousers and it was, a, it was a band of psoriasis a rash just about an inch wide around uh, the, the ankles he said this is all that's left the rest is gone. And he said, thank you. He didn't need to say thank you. Just showing me that just brought tears to my eyes. The amount of pain, irritation, which was taken away. He said, this little bit at the bottom would really distress most people. For me, this is nothing for what I had before. Thank you so much. A lot of times this meditation does relieve stress. One of the main the main um, contributors for such psoriasis, not so much a heart condition, but a stress condition. So please relax to the max. When you look to the body, please relax it. Kindness. Now that's one thing which I must say that is in basic Buddhism, but at many retreats, they don't practice. It's one of the reasons why and I used to go to a, a Zen group and they used a Zen stick. Somehow now that didn't make sense. Hitting someone on the back, 
not kindness. It just doesn't fit. And in fact, because I travelled around a lot and I talked to monks and nuns from all different countries, I was in Hong Kong and in an international monastery there had monks coming in and out from mainland China and one of the, the Chinese monks told me, he said, he was at a retreat in mainland China you know, where the master used the Zen stick and there was this one middle-aged woman, you know, she was a bit sort of uh, new to the meditation, so she was sleepy. And the master came up and hit her on the back with the Zen stick. So she got out her mobile phone, called the cops. <laughs> and the police came and they took the head monk away. <laughs> he was arrested. <laughs> it's a true story. <laughs> you can't do that these days without permission. So you get all these funny stories as well. Anyway, so it works sometimes. You can't guarantee anything obviously, but give it a try. See what happens. Learn about your body. What makes the psoriasis or the itch less? What makes it more? This is second satipatthana, understanding Vedana. Understanding what causes these things. What actually uh, makes them disappear. Incredible stuff. Many thanks for your talk last night. I got inspired to join the retreat. Yay! And wonder if that would be okay. Yay! I'm doing a personal retreat at Guy House at the moment. Yay! Why not? As long as it's okay with the management. I don't mind. What would be required to establish the Theravada Monastery in Poland? Yeah, I was saying that. Uh, a Theravada monastery in Poland. A monastery needs monks or nuns. So find some monks or nuns and get a monastery. <laughs> Just do it. Aren't there, is there any monasteries in Poland? Monks and nuns monasteries? I know, I suppose the, the Catholic monasteries are getting abandoned by the monks and nuns. Lessening the number of monks there. If there are, it's a wonderful opportunity. Ready-made monasteries. Already built, but no monks in there. Give them an offer they can't refuse. No, no, no that's bad, isn't it? That's uh, the Godfather. <laughs> <laughs> See what happens. But you know, I just, because Venerable Chandler mentioned that earlier, I thought, wouldn't it be nice to have uh, even Try a dual sangha monastery. Monks and nuns living together in peace and harmony. Because I was just thinking, I went to an all-male school. It didn't stop here from just messing around with the girls in the school next door. But, you know, sometimes you, f you felt that there's, ah, oh, you're getting a weird view of the world in an all-male school. Or an all-girls school. So who knows, maybe that's great for Poland, start from scratch and have Mark's Edmunds. I've got, it's like nice to experiment, see what works. There's many of the monks which I've ordained are gay. They make wonderful monks. They don't break any of the precepts, but they just add something else and it's wonderful to open monasticism up. You obviously, once you're a, a monk, you have to be celibate, but you know, they, 
they don't hide the fact they were gay before and also disabled disabled? I'd hate that word I call it just different there's a couple of my monks who are well the first one clinical schizophrenic and I really sort of took a chance ordaining him, teaching meditation but now you would never know that he's on clozapine or something which is one of the main drugs he's a brilliant monk and you know he's so mindful and aware he knows how to, you know, and he was always right when he goes a bit too far and he needs to get his medication just adjusted and because of that no one would ever know that he was he was uh, uh, a person who was, has schizophrenia it's amazing what you can do so it's great and I should one of these days I'm going to send them all over the world and you know, to say I'm a schizophrenic monk and how I dealt with it through mindfulness, through kindness through sense, uh, being sensible oh, and it's, it's amazing what you can do so great we have all these different types it's nine o'clock I know oh, we should actually say that the organisation here, Guy House, are changing the clocks at nine o'clock because it's the end of summer. 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 It was already summer yesterday. <laughs> it was raining a lot. <laughs> this is not summer like I know in Australia. <laughs> but anyway, it's the end of British summer time, so you have an extra hour to sleep in tomorrow. Yay! Or is it one hour less? It's an extra hour, isn't it? Yeah. So it says nine o'clock on the clock here, but it's oh actually uh, it will be sort of equivalent to eight o'clock. So you can so do you want to carry on with question and answers or are you really fed up? <laughs> okay, it's only eight o'clock, so we've got another Oh you get up at six yeah, six is that meditation first thing yeah. tomorrow morning? Yeah, well we get up early if you wish to. I see who's doing the um the bells, that's my we can talk. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Can't change the clocks. Yeah. In fifty minutes. Anyway, can one attain jhana in everyday practice without a prolonged retreat? People have done that, but it's been a fluke. It makes it more likely. A good example of that is. Can you walk from here to um, John O'Groats? Of course you can. John O'Groats, the furthest point in Scotland. You can walk there. But it'd be stupid to do so when you can get a car or get a, a, um, a bicycle or something. So yes, you can attain jhana in everyday practice, but you're much more likely to get these wonderful states in a prolonged retreat where you can really um, renounce a lot. It's how much you can let go. In ordinary life, you're sitting there in your uh, meditation room at home, you're getting into it, and then your kids come up and say, Mummy, Mummy, Mummy! You get so many distractions in life. Or you're sitting, starting meditation, and your, your husband says, um, what are you doing? Nothing, darling. Oh, great! Come and help me. So, if you're, I tell sometimes people, if anyone asks you, what are you doing? 
never say I'm doing nothing because people understand that as you're free to help them. If you really want to meditate, say I'm busy watching the trees grow. Trees do grow, you know. I've looked for those trees and if I stop looking at them, then they've grown. So you have to look. find an excuse to actually, it's really meditating, but anyway, it's just to learn how to appreciate and give priority to nothing. Does Western pursuit of science, i.e. physics, string theory, quantum theory, etc., still make sense and value, or should we all just be meditating and seeing insights internally? Sometimes in science, it becomes too institutionalized. Again, on the walls of the Cavendish Laboratory in Cambridge, they used to have graffiti, but they were really meaningful graffiti. On there it was, the eminence of a great scientist is measured by the amount of time they stop progress in their field. The more eminent, the more famous, the more they stop progress. The people who challenge can't be right, because this is a great scientist, says they're not. So sometimes science is not challenging itself enough. It's not rebellious enough. In the old days, the great scientists were really eccentric and rebellious. They'd see things other people would not see. They were, they were weird because they'd always see things in a new way. Not working on old thoughts where everyone thinks the same, no one thinks at all. It's hard to see things in a different way because sometimes you feel rejected. But, you'll find many other people will appreciate your insights. Science, basically physics, has been dead for years. The last great breakthroughs was, was quantum physics. Since then, there's no great different ways of looking at things. That's my opinion. Just working out the great insights of the past, almost running out of steam, waiting for the next completely new way of looking at the world. And in particular, the one thing they're missing out on, the mind. Aristotle always used to say there's six senses. You know that India had a huge influence on Greek philosophy. Pythagoras, in his works, he was specifically stated he got most of his philosophy from the Indians. And no one has actually worked out exactly what he meant or traced where he got that information from. But that's stated there. And Aristotle would always have six senses. Seeing or sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and the mind, he would say, was the sixth sense it was, he called it the common sense, because whatever the other senses uh, experienced, then the mind would take up for itself. And sometimes I say that the problem with our modern world is we've lost our common sense. 
we've lost our mind. Five senses is all we have. And the sixth sense is a, a movie about some kid or something who's weird. Six senses. Now, okay, I'm not sure if I look, but are you happy with me carrying on like this? They're tired. Okay, well this, the nature of the mind. What is the mind? So, one of my friends, you've met him, Jeff, he was at Cambridge with me, but his daughter at the, what is it, the, the first class of primary school, and a grade one in sort of the West in, or in other countries, Teacher asked the question, what is the biggest thing in the world? And one kid put the hand up. My, my daddy, my daddy is the biggest thing in the world. For a five-year-old, you can understand that. No, 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 said someone else. A mountain. No, no, an elephant is bigger. Elephant is bigger. Another kid, a mountain is bigger. They're getting somewhere. And the daughter of my classmate from, from Cambridge, he said no. My eye is the biggest thing in the world. What do you mean? Well, my eye can see her daddy. It can see an elephant and a mountain and so much more. If all of that can fit into my eye, my eye must be the biggest thing in the world. <laughs> That's what we mean by seeing things in a different way. That's insight, real insight which opens up amazing new avenues of knowledge, different ways of looking. And you look at that, wow, how can a five-year-old say that? Because they haven't been conditioned to see things in other ways. Fresh, open mind. So, when he wrote to me about that, thank you very much, nine out of ten, not ten out of ten. Because your mind can see everything your mind can see, and it can imagine things you'll never see in the real world. It can hear real imaginary sounds, smell real imaginary um, scents, can taste real flavours, imaginary flavours, feel real physical feelings and imaginary ones. And it also has its own area of, of, of experience. What is known by the mind. So, if all of that Everything which can be seen, heard, smelled, tasted, touched, or known. If all of that can fit into your mind, then your mind must be the biggest thing. I didn't say in the world, because the world can fit into your mind. A different way of looking. I mentioned that for so often, it's in the first book which I wrote. No one's ever managed to find a flaw in that argument. It's just a different way of looking. Fascinating. It also happens to coincide with the Buddha's teachings. The mind, the forerunner of all things. Anyway, I like the idea of the mind and science coming together instead of just denying the existence of a mind. Deny, trying to maintain that when your body dies, and the brain is not working, then there's no more consciousness, no more awareness.
which is total, there's a Pali word called Gomayang. Gomayang, Go means bull, Mayang, what comes out the back end of a bull. I'd only say it once, bullshit. So every time I say Gomayang, you know what I'm talking about. Total Gomayang, to think that the brain makes the mind. The mind is some byproduct of the brain. The evidence is so against that. Even Schrodinger's equation. In quantum physics, you need an observer, a mind, to actually create reality. And you can't get around that. All these amazing things. One thing, as a Buddhist, if you are a Buddhist, people really, f they know the last moments of your life you know, are really important. That's classic Buddhism. You know, the last thoughts will determine your rebirth. So many people who believe that think, I should not take uh, morphine or painkiller when I die, because then I won't know where I am. That is Gomayang. Because there's something which I've come across being with people who are dying called terminal lucidity. They've got a name for it now. Look it up on the internet. Terminal lucidity. It's when a person is in coma, they're drugged to the eyeballs with morphine, their brain is dysfunctional or not working, and then the last few minutes of their life, they open their eyes and they're lucid. They know who you are. This is even people with dementia, with Alzheimer's. They don't know who the heck you are until the last moments of their life. They say, Darwin, where have you been all this time? They said, I've been visiting you every day, Mum. But now, only now they recognise you called terminal lucidity. The last moments, the morphine, which is the painkiller of the brain, the brain has stopped, the mind takes over and knows. And that's practical if you're, when you're Buddhist, you're concerned about your last moments, please take those, that morphine, because you'll be clear at the very end. You probably, I don't know if any of you have had those experiences, being with a person, they basically wake up just before they die. Is, oh, crocky, a long one. Still okay? Okay. Dear Ajahn, sometimes I have a strong, a long and peaceful meditation to the point that I have nimittas. It's a wonderful feeling to be bathed in light. However, at some point, where the light is getting very bright, my eyeballs hurt to the point I feel that I might, they, it might explode. I try to be mindful and understand that nothing wrong is happening. It's going to happen. However, the physical pain is sometimes so strong that I have to stop my meditation. How can I overcome this physical pain, please? I'd be grateful for advice in your teachings. Usually that, that pain should never be there because your eyeballs aren't moving at all. They're not doing anything. But somehow or other you're transferring the idea of a nimitta to be something seen and it's almost like a, uh, a wrong wiring of the brain. One practical way of overcoming that to actually to convince yourself that the eyeballs are not involved in this nimitta 
is to do something as simple as wearing eye shades. When you put eye shades over you when you're meditating, you know, the, the brain knows, the mind knows that it's not light, the eyeballs are not really sort of part of this, so when that light comes, the association light means eyeballs, strong means you know, really sort of irritating, and eventually that, that idea is you create the pain in the eyeballs when it really shouldn't be there. It's amazing how the mind can create pain. It's, I think I told you about that, um, touching the, what I saw with my own eyes in the Psychic Research Society in Cambridge, put a student under hypnosis, long stick, four inch nail on the end, convinced the student under hypnosis it was red hot, touched the nail on the skin, ah! as you would expect if somebody was touched by a red hot uh, iron object. Yeah, that made sense. But then to see a wound come up on that skin, a burn, a boil, a trauma caused by a nail at room temperature. That was really shocking to me. The mind had created that wound because it believed it was being burnt. The mind is powerful. So, from that, the obvious corollary, if the mind can create a burn, can the mind uncreate a tumour? That fellow with a big tumour in his nose did that. The power of the mind is huge. And that would be the next part of science. Should have been there a long time ago. The next part of um, medicine. Little bits here and there, but sometimes it's and people are hurting by not using that. So anyway, maybe one more. Or oh, actually, how many more we got? Okay, here we go. Why do we try so hard to avoid the now with the thought, radio talk, anything but nothing? Again, it's just I remember just when I was a school teacher for one year, I'd come home so tired. And instead of just relaxing, I'd put anything on the TV. Kids' programs, any rubbish, just because I was unhappy with the state of my mind. I was tired. Because of, and these days, people tell me that they get home and they're bored, they turn on the TV, 120 channels, nothing on TV. Open the refrigerator, food falling out, nothing to eat. So then they close their eyes and they go through their, their what might call, playlist of fantasies, dreams and plans. Anything to do to actually escape from this present moment. But in meditation, we come to the present moment, we get to know the present moment, it's not as bad as you think. So hang out in the present moment, it's much better than watching, was it Game of Thrones? or um, Avengers, because people tell me about these things. They ask me about, what do you think about Avengers and this fellow Thanos destroying half, is that a very good way for climate extinction? To extinguish half the population of the Earth? And then they ask me, if you had that power, Ajahn Brahm, 
to save the world of extinguishing half the people in this world, who would you extinguish first? They're <laughs> 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 really tough questions. But anyway, I don't know. Anyway, so, yeah, what was that question again? Um, science, okay. Okay. Oh, I forgot what it was now. Okay. Anyway, that's enough, I think. So, yeah, that's the, that's the boredom. Why do we wander off? It is because you've got not a good relationship with you and yourself. You're afraid of yourself. You don't love yourself. Sometimes I think, I used to think, when my mind wandered away, why? I pulled it back again. Gently, come back with the breath, wandered off again, pulled it back again. Pulled it back again. I did that for a few years. It was endless. So instead of doing that repeatedly, the mind wanders off, pull it back. The mind wanders off, pull it back. Until I had enough mouse to actually answer, well, why? Why doesn't the mind want to stay with me? Because I was a control freak. Turning it off. So when I said, mind, if you want to wander off, please wander off. You can go if you want. Then it wanted to stay with me. Because we had a good relationship, we loved each other. We weren't afraid. You may have relationships with a person, the one you live with. Do you sometimes want to run away? Why? Relationship is, needs some, some healing. When it's someone you really love, they want, oh, I just need you know, to go to a retreat for a few days, please go. Off you go, I love you, and you come back again. Really nice. Your mind. Never treat your breath like a slave, like a maid. Treat it like a best friend. And your breath will always be with you. So it doesn't need to run away. When I'm with my best friend, I don't want to do anything. Just hang out, chill out with them. No force. And that's actually how you stay with your breathing, or with your breath. You don't wander off anywhere. What is a good way to figure out what our needs are in relationships? Feel them. Don't think them. Even talking about them. Just get your intuition going. Feel it in here. Most ethics, morality, start in here, not in books. Never allow your learning to stand in the way of truth. I like that saying. Never allow your learning, your knowledge, everything you've read, to stand away what you know is true. So you feel. And that's where you learn. What is the relationship between nothing and kindness? When you're very kind, don't you send each other sweet nothings? <laughs> someone once told this, why do you shout at each other? in a relationship. Because when you shout, you only shout when someone's a long way away. You need to raise your voice so they can hear you. When you're close together, you don't need to shout. You can just whisper. So if you raise your voice at anybody, it shows you're emotionally distant. Even though they may be right next to you. The intensity of your voice is a measure of your emotional distance or closeness. 
That's why when we're far apart, emotionally, we've argued with one another, we need to shout. If you're close together, you don't need to shout. And nothing in kindness. So, when you have nothing, you always have kindness. Sometimes it's uh, other things we have in our life, we're attached to, stop us sharing, and just this wonderful, the door of my heart is open to you. But if there's so many things inside my heart already, so I'm full at the moment, so you can't come in. Take a number and I'll get back to you soon. Your, your, um, your call is important to us. <laughs> the first available operator <laughs> would attend to your call. That's when you're too busy. If you have nothing, emptiness. Emptiness can accommodate everybody. How many people in this hall? How much nothing is in this hall? The space under the ceiling, above the floor, between the walls. There's more space in this hall than there are people. But when you come in here, what do you notice? The people, the things, the Buddha statue, the Kuan Yin, the ceilings, the curtains. It just needs a change in the way of looking. You see the space between things. And the space does not um, separate us. As you can say that, you can say it's what unites us, what's between us, what embraces us all, what joins us, the space between. Why bow to the statue of the Buddha? I did say yesterday it's to, in order to exercise the tummy muscles so you don't get fat, but obviously that doesn't work. <laughs> I was invited to this Christian school top Anglican school in Perth to give the morning assembly talk because I was really friendly with the chaplain who we worked together with cancer support and so the principal was a very strict Christian and he said when we go into the assembly room the chaplain and I said the principal will bow to the figure of Jesus you're a Buddhist you don't need to and I turned on the principal and said to him I demand my right to bow to your Jesus. <laughs> I made it dramatic, as I often do. He was taken aback. He said, what are you talking about? You're a Buddhist, aren't you? You're a Buddhist leader. You're an abbot. People know you as a Buddhist. What are you doing bowing to our Jesus? He said, there's much in your Jesus I don't agree with, but there's many, which I, many things in him which I admire. It's compassion, kindness, service. That's what I'm going to bow to. It's the same when I go and bow to the Buddha. The first thing I do when I bow to a Buddha is I bow to virtue, to goodness, to trust, honesty. Because that is something which I really, really value. I worship virtue. You can trust one another. People make mistakes. You don't have to be perfect, but just let people know you made a mistake. You don't get criticised or because you learn from mistakes, you grow from them. You, know, you, you, you can leave your doors open and valuables there, you're not going to get stolen. You know, you have the sexual ethics. You're not going to exploit people from a position of power or entitlement. You know, virtue is amazing stuff in this world. And when you practice virtue and you grow in virtue, it makes the world such a wonderful place. So my first bow is to virtue. 
precepts, ethics, much more than that. But I bow to that. And when I bow to it, I remember the importance of virtue. The next thing I bow to is peace. The peace in meditation, which is oh, so awesome. The peace in a community where we can live together quietly. The peace in a relationship, so your family, your marriage. But peace together. Peace in the world. You go outside and it's just so quiet. Peace is so therapeutic and healing. So I bow to peace, in whichever way I see it. And the third bow, because I remember how important that is. And the third bow is to compassion or wisdom. I lump them both together. Whenever you see a compassionate act, it just the world brightens up. It doesn't matter from who. So I love bowing to compassion. I realize how important that is in life, how important it is in meditation, how important it is in the world to forgive and be kind. And having done that, there's my three bows to virtue, peace and compassion or wisdom. Sometimes people call it Sila Samadhi Panya. But I call it in English, virtue, peace and compassion. And I told that to the the uh, Anglican priest, the Anglican uh, uh, principal, he was really impressed. You know what happened next? Two weeks later, he organized a bus trip of the sixth form to actually to visit my monastery in Perth, in Serpentine. And I sh we should have had this photographed or videoed, but together, the two of us, the devout Anglican principal and myself, we went into the main hall and we did three bows to the Buddha. <laughs> That is harmony. Think about anything. I only see that inside of that person which I respect, and I bow to that. And that part of them grows. Prisoners in jail, I see the good part of them. And that part of them grows. That's why I bow, to remember, keep reminding myself of what the Buddha stood for. So I say that, and have all these Australians they're not Buddhists, they're probably mostly atheists. Bow, bow, bow. Because <laughs> they, they see the reason for it. You know the reason why um, people actually don't wear their shoes in a temple? It's because when the, when the monk or nun giving a talk tells a bad joke, you've got nothing to throw at them. Have you ever seen the Chinese temples where before they put incense in the thing, they, they shake it like this? Have you seen that in Chinese temples? Never did that in Thailand, so I wonder where it came from. And then it struck me. Why? Because in that Asian tradition, it's always the auntie or the grandma takes the children to the temple for the first time to show them what to do. And the auntie, the grandma, has got Parkinson's. And so all the children think that's the way it should be done. <laughs> why is it in all the Zen temples you go to in Korea or in, J in, in Japan, why have they always got these really highly polished wooden floors? It's because when people do meditation, they wiggle this way, wiggle, that's right, you polish the floor with your fat bums. <laughs> and over a century or two, <laughs> that's how it gets polished. That's my theory. <laughs> anyway, can you talk a bit about how best we can calibrate effort so the effort itself 
becomes effortlessness. Why are you doing effort for? To get somewhere. When you get there, enjoy it. Trouble is, when we get to where we had effort to get to, then we want to get somewhere else. And it's, it goes on and on and on in life. Once I achieve this and I'll be happy. Yeah, sure. Once you achieve this, then you want something else. Once you manage to pay off your mortgage, then you want to do an extension on the, the house. Once you get the extension on the house, then you want to move to a bigger house. Once you move to a bigger house, then you want to get a kitchen. When you get the, this kitchen, you'll get another kitchen. Then you'll get a car. When you get this car, now you want to get an electric car, mm -hmm. a smaller car. It's endless, isn't it? So, why not end it now? Here I am. I'm going to stop trying to be somewhere else. In, one of our monks went to serve in the prison. And the prisoners liked him and at the end of the, the uh, one day they asked him, can you stay on a bit longer? We've heard you like cheese and chocolate. You know, we've got lots for you. We want to talk to you about all sorts of things. And they started talking, what's it like in a monastery, monastery in Australia? And talk about the monastery where I live. He said, oh yeah, we get up at four o'clock every morning. Four o'clock, they said. Even murderers don't have to get up that time. You must have done some very bad karma to get up at four o'clock every morning. And he said, well, it is optional. You can always get up earlier, but not later. Then what do you do after getting up? Can you watch the late night movie? No, we don't have TVs in monasteries. It's eight precepts all the time, even more than that. So what do you do? You meditate. Oh yeah, I suppose so. Then what do you have for breakfast? And even here that sometimes I just uh, indulge when I'm overseas, but over there we have like a mug and I put some wheat bix in it, some milk, and that's it. And a cup of tea. That's all we have. Wow, they say. In even the toughest of jails, you can get sort of bacon and eggs, you can get porridge, you can get vegan, vegetarian, Asian, noodles, pancakes, whatever you want. That's all you get in monastery? Yeah. So then what do you do? Do you can sort of play sport in the morning? You can't play sport as monks. If we did play sport, I once thought of starting a Buddhist football team, soccer team. And I realised, oh, what would happen? We'd have to play by Buddhist precepts. If the opposition wanted the ball, non-attachment, here you have it. <laughs> Let go! Compassion! If the opposition couldn't score a goal, you score an own goal for them. be a lot of fun, but <laughs> you wouldn't win many games. Have you ever noticed that Buddhist countries never get into the World Cup soccer finals? Thailand can never get into the World Cup soccer finals. You know why? They're too Buddhist. They let go. Winning is not important. Compassion is. Anyway, um, where we go? Oh yeah. So no, we just, we do our chores in the morning. We work very hard. I work very hard. So, the next day, well, what do you have for lunch? Well, you have a lot of lunch, but all to eat in one bowl. And sometimes, actually quite often, I've had, um, what was it, strawberry ice cream on spaghetti. <laughs> Why are you laughing? How many people have ever eaten strawberry ice cream on spaghetti? Only me. You see, that is what we call delusion. 
you assume, you jump to conclusions that strawberry ice cream on spaghetti is disgusting without ever trying it for yourself. Actually, you're right, it is disgusting. <laughs> anyway, so, wow, even in solitary, you have a tray with different compartments. So then what do you do in the afternoon? Can you, you know, just, uh, what, can you play cards or something? No, it's more meditation. Or taking a rest, or doing some study. What, what, what do you have for dinner? Dinner? We don't have dinner in monasteries. You know, just the meal in the morning, nothing in the, in the evening. Wow, they say. And then, well, what do you do at night time? Can you play cards, game of poker? I said, no, meditate. What time do you go to bed? Bed? Most of the monks, like me, I sleep on the floor. Wow, they say. That is so ascetic in your monastery. And, it is, and they felt very sorry for this monk. So sorry, they told him, that's terrible in your monastery. Why don't you come in here and stay with us instead? <laughs> in prison. And then they had a point. You get much more range of food there, three meals a day is a month. You can have a nice bed, you can just watch documentaries on the TV, you can just enjoy, do sport, exercise, go to the gym. But then, that led to thinking, there's a waiting list of people trying to get into my monastery, and the nuns' monastery. There's a waiting list of people trying to get out of jail. What's the difference? What is a prison? The reason I spend a lot of time on this story, a prison is any place you don't want to be. Doesn't matter how comfortable it is. If you don't want to be here, you're in prison. You made a jail for yourself. If you're waiting to go to bed because I'm going on too long, this meditation hall and talk is a prison. You don't want to be here. If you're in a relationship which is causing you trouble, you don't want to be here. Your relationship is like a prison. You're in jail. If you're in a job, you don't, you're not looking forward to going there you know, when this retreat finishes or whatever, your job is a prison. Or if you're in a body when it gets very old and weary and sick, you don't want to be here. Your body is now a prison for you. How do you escape from the prisons of life? You don't need to change your relationship. You don't need to change your body and cure it and get healthy again. You don't need to sort of leave this room change the attitude, want to be here, and then you're free. In meditation sometimes I say, I don't want this anymore. I don't want to be here. <laughs> and I put myself in prison. I change my attitude, I want to be here with you. Just talking, relating, sharing stories. When I want to be here, I'm free. That's a prison and freedom. Any place you don't want to be is jail. Why don't you want to be here? My stupid mind, wandering all over the place, falling asleep. When you want to be here, you're free. And the mind becomes free. That's how it works. Two quick questions. How should one go about creating harmony within a group that lacks a unity of intention? It's great because no one ever thinks the same. 
How on earth do you create harmony in an orchestra where every member of the orchestra plays a different instrument? What you do is you listen to the other person in the ear, out through your instrument until eventually it just all blends together. Don't be the dominant one, the one who knows how to do things. But instead, just listen to each other. And what they say, you appreciate. And then eventually, you come through diversity to what is really the common purpose. Never reject people. They may say something which is totally different from what you believe. There's a perfect reason there. Once in Australia, a big conference, there was this really heavy intellectual, Father Frank Brennan, he's well known. He was appointed by the government to head the committee to get a human rights addition, a addition to the Australian Constitution. And he was at this talk I was presenting and he asked me, what is a Buddhist idea of God? I knew I couldn't crack a joke with this guy. <laughs> he was just you know, too in his head. So he challenged me and I like challenges. Sometimes I fail miserably, but every now and again I hit the spot. When I hit the spot, it's what I tell you. When I go wrong, I never tell you. <laughs> <laughs> so, one that I was co-presenting with one of my mates. He was a Catholic abbot, Abbot Blessed. Really nice guy. And so, I said, I've been having so many dialogues with Abbot Placid. And, and he always tells me, he said one of his fundamental beliefs as a Catholic, as a, uh, a, yeah, it's right, a, a Benedictine, was that everyone is searching for God. Now I'm not going to reject that out of fan, saying, well that's Christian, that's not me. I said, I respect this fellow, so I'm going to listen to him. And I said, what do Buddhists search for? What atheists search for? For respect, no matter who you are, so you're never diminished or demeaned, you're respected no matter what gender, gender orientation, your physical shape, any what people call deformities, no, you're respected. That you're loved, that people actually care about you, really, and you have the opportunity to love others, and really care for them. Uh, peace, we search for truth, we search for meaning. No matter what happens to us, what is the meaning of this? How can we use this in the future? So you may add many other things to that. What are you searching for as Buddhists? As an atheist? As a Muslim? What are you searching for? Add that all together. And I said, if my friend, Abbot Prasis, said everyone is searching for God, and people are searching for peace, for meaning, for truth, for freedom, then that must be what God is. Added two things together. I said, that is an answer which doesn't divide people of different races, religions, traditions. Can anyone object to that? We're all searching for respect, for peace, for freedom, 
to love and be loved, to be respected, understood. So there's the answer. He said, wow, yeah, that's a great answer. And that was such an accolade from an intellectual who was well known in Australia. So that's actually how, within a group that lacks unity of intention, the group, what are you searching for? What do you want? If you find out what you want, being all together, that's our goal. The last question. How do you take the ease from meditation away from the busyness of the secular Western work and family world uh, into that world without rejecting that world and the meaning of it, it had, whatever. So, of course, it's wonderful when you can meditate and be peaceful, learn all these incredible new ways of looking at things, and you go out there into the world and you're a much more peaceful, efficient person. How heavy is this glass of water? The longer I hold it, the heavier it feels. After one minute, my arm is in pain. Two minutes, I'm in agony. Three minutes, I'm a hospital case and a very stupid monk. What should I do when this gets too heavy to hold comfortably? You put it down and rest. Put it down and feel my arm is resting and it's getting re-energised, so when I pick it up again, it's no problem at all, it's easy to hold. This is the meaning of stress. Stress has got nothing to do with how much responsibilities and how much burden you have in life. Look at me. I've got so many burdens in life. This monastery, that monastery. To me these days, it's like playing Monopoly. <laughs> You find a nice a piece of land, you buy it, and you put a monastery on it, and huts. <laughs> that was weird the way I looked. But anyway, and so I've got lots more work all the time. I should be retired by now, but still working hard. But when I get tired, when I can't hold my responsibilities comfortably, put it down and rest. Take time out. Go and watch the trees grow, meditate, shut my door, get my boundaries. I'm going to rest now. When I pick up my cup again, I'm rested and now I'm efficient. I told this story many times, it's taught in Harvard Business School now, an investment of time. Are you time poor? Because you don't know how to invest in time. You're really tired out. Take half an hour, meditate, let go, relax. When you go back to work again, you're fresh, energised. You get on the computer, you can write the email really quickly. How many times have you sat in front of a computer trying to write an email, the words don't come, ideas are not there, and you're struggling and struggling, pushing and pushing, getting more and more tired and frustrated. The right way of dealing with that is stop. Put it down, relax, rest. Half an hour, an hour. When you pick it up again afterwards. You have to know how to relax properly and not thinking about stuff when you're meditating. Really let go, let the mind even get dull. Let it get dull, be kind to it and just relax to the max. 
And then when you pick it up again afterwards, easy to hold. Ideas come up. And you do three hours work in two. Because your mind is efficient. It's not how long you work, how efficient you work. That is the meaning of the world and being efficient. If you meditate every now and again, relax, rest, become highly efficient. The very first book I wrote, that was the Open the Door of Your Heart. I only wrote it because someone said I should write it out of compassion because those stories were very powerful. Now I've got no time. So they totally outwitted me. They decided to write it themselves. The first few stories they gave to me, they were hopeless. They didn't know how to write at all. So I said, I'd better write it myself. Uh-oh, you've got me to write the book. So, the first 54 stories in that book, I meditated, and then after meditation, I just, with a pen, just wrote them on a piece of paper. One hour. That's what I gave myself every day for 14 days. And that was, honestly, that was how the first half of that book was written. It just flowed out, and I never interrupted it. Let it flow, don't check the grammar or anything, let it flow. I still have the manuscript, and it's hardly any corrections at all. When I look about it, that's amazing. The power of samadhi, you put things down, and you write it so quickly. That was the first half. Gave myself a break and then another two weeks, or I think three weeks for the second half. By hand. I was computer illiterate. So then, having written it down, I asked uh, a friend to type it up for me. And they typed it up, put it on one of these old CD discs. Just before I was going to Melbourne to give a series of talks. Went to the first talk at Melbourne University. I didn't know who to give the manuscript to, to send it to this publisher or that publisher, but the first talk I gave, <laughs> this lady came up afterwards, I'll always remember her name, Magnolia Flora. <laughs> Such a unique name. And she said, oh, it was a great talk, if ever you want anything published, I work for a publishing house. In my bag, here you go. <laughs> and she published it. And it became a, it is a legitimate bestseller. And that's how easy it is when, you know, you don't force things, just let it happen. It was great. And you know, I just last year I saw her again when I was at Melbourne. Hadn't seen her for years. And apparently it was because, you know, she got cancer. Breast cancer. And she used that book. And she actually went in remission, but it came back again. She used that book again. And she said, thank you so much. Hadn't seen her for years. And so she was alive, happy. Amazing, just the power of kindness and goodness. So that's, you don't force anything. In this world, the lay world, the monk world, the nun world, we know how it works. And you use meditation, you use the Dharma, things just flow. And you get lots done, energized, happy. So, no problems. <laughs> Very good. So, thank you for staying up late tonight.
You can have a sleep in in the morning, you don't really sleep in because just the clocks change. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.